This is the Physical Activity Researcher Podcast, a podcast for researchers of sedentary behavior, physical activity, and sports. Join for a relaxed dialogue about research design, practicalities, and, well, anything related to research. Learn from your fellow researchers useful and relevant information that does not fit into formal content and limited space of scientific publications. And here is your host. Welcome, everyone. This is the Meaningful Sport Podcast, and I am your host, Nora Ronkainen. Meaningful Sport is a series of discussions on the why and how involvement in sport and physical activity can be an important part of a life worth living. If you are interested in the theme, you might also want to check out MeaningfulSport.com. There you can find podcast show notes, read a blog, and access many resources for further explorations of Meaningful Sport. Welcome back to the second part of our episode on spirituality in sport. Today's interview is done by Olli Tikkanen, and we are discussing the spiritual dimension of sport together with Dr. Mark Nesty. Our conversation draws on the book we have written together with Mark, titled Meaning and Spirituality in Sport, Psychological Perspectives. In the first part, we discussed some trends on how spirituality is understood in contemporary Western culture and the challenges researchers face when trying to define and study the construct. Today, we explore the ways that the spiritual dimension has been studied in sport research, talk a bit about the interest on mindfulness in sport psychology, and both of us discuss the favorite topics of our book, which for Mark is applied sports psychology practice, and for me, aging, spirituality, and sport. I hope you enjoy today's discussion. If we if we move forward and and go to that, where are we now in research on on spirituality? Nora, would you like to start on this one? So yeah, briefly. So in in the book, we were looking at the trajectory of 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 the study of spirituality. And I think some of the earlier work, we have these fascinating uh, studies on peak experience, uh, flow. I I think some of the early work on flow also had this spiritual or religious dimension. Mark, you've written about that more than I have, but so flow was something that it's something that probably became more secular and and more also used as a kind of how to enhance performance and those questions took over the interest in instead of kind of what is the spiritual element of flow and so we have these different studies on runners high flow peak experience some would talk about mystical experiences that i talked about as well and so Another strand is this study of Zen and, you know, there are these popular books about, you know, the Zen zone and the Zen of tennis and golf and, and these kind of things. So certainly what we touched upon already, that kind of Eastern spirituality is probably something that is, for many people, it's easier to think about that as something that that there are these principles that are relevant to people regardless of what is their their religion and and so forth and so i think those were the earlier studies really but so 
what we see some of the movements now, for example, Mark's work has really lifted to the forefront that when you are working with athletes who have a spiritual or religious worldview, you need to understand that worldview in order for you to be able to work with them effectively. And, and the strand called cultural sports psychology is also very much lifting to the forefront that athletes are not just athletes, but they are people and they will have their spiritual beliefs and religious beliefs and they have their different cultural backgrounds and, and all these things are very relevant when you are working with different athletes, especially now that in terms of transnationalism of sports or in in a lot of uh, sport teams, and Mark will certainly talk more about this, you will have a lot of athletes who are from a different cultural background from your own. And also the Western perspective is not the dominant one or the secular perspective is certainly not the dominant one when we look into things in a global scale. So those are some of the things that we see. And I think one thing I like to talk about is mindfulness which is a big boom but i think i'll now hand over to mark so maybe you have a few remarks on those things and then we can talk about mindfulness a little bit it's funny nora as you were speaking there um one of the things i just scribbled down to make sure that i uh, tie that into this answer so i will delay this was mindfulness um which is having its uh, its moment um which is so unfortunate that sports psychology does this with with such uh, you know, excellent and useful ideas that have already been there before, and then um, they have their moment, and then, <laughs> by definition, when you have your moment, means eventually you won't have your moment, and then it disappears, and 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 um, we move on to something else. So let's let's give mindfulness a bit of attention in a minute. Before we get to there, just pick up on some of the things that you've mentioned. You've covered a lot of really important things there, and and probably in terms of research, it has been not easy but easier to look at, um, if you like, the idea of, as athletes would describe it in coaches, of, of being in the zone. Um, so the, the well-known idea, particularly at high-level sport, whatever the sport is, but actually at high-level performance right across the domain, whether it's music, art, drama, surgery, um, writing books, <laughs> making your tea, it doesn't matter what you're doing. Um, this strange phenomenon, which is phenomenologically um, derived, in other words, it's come from the lived experience, real life. It's like, so tell me what you're thinking when you're actually at your very best. And this strange apparent paradox to which the usual reply is um, nothing. And then if you push a little bit harder, as I always do, and never let anybody get away with that one, um, and they usually say, well, just the thing that I'm doing now, which, of course, is the answer across um, so many different domains. And I think, you know, there's plenty of literature to suggest that it's pretty universal. Um, and uh, so what are we talking about? We're talking about something that is really quite remarkable. You, you spend all this time training your mind and your body to perfect some amazing techniques it will require you to be in the best physiological and physical condition um, and uh, with confidence and perfected these techniques to use them in the right place. And then, paradoxically, they are best delivered when apparently you're not there. You being essentially your conscious mind and, uh, and your awareness of your body. In other words, you perform at your very best when you have 
if I could use this expression, when you've left yourself, which is very strange. Um, strange or not, that's how human beings appear to be. And uh, that's really interesting. Now, that's been described as flow in the work of Mihai Csikszentmihalyi, and he describes that in very rich detail and how we can make that more likely rather than not. He ties it into performance, optimal performance, but interestingly, he also ties it into health. That's psychological and physical and spiritual health. And in his later books, he actually, I think, for me, goes too far, but I can see why he's tempted. He, he actually says that this is where happiness resides. And he actually then takes another step. And I seem to think that he's suggesting that almost the meaning of life is to live in this, let's call it a time. Somebody else has said this before, but a time when there is no history. So you have no future thoughts and you have no thoughts about the past. All you're thinking about is the thing that's immediately in front of you. And that's a remarkable thing when you spent so much time to apparently prepare to do things that are coming down the line in front of you. So all that work on flow, the zone, fantastic research there. Unfortunately, a lot in sports psychology has not been, I think, as consistent with the underpinning philosophy and, and phenomenological psychology of his work and has tried to quantify that and has measured flow in relation to other quantifiable constructs. And as a consequence, we've got something there, but I think it's limited. So this has there's huge implications for research methods, or should I say methodology more accurately, and understanding um, the value of, of, of qualitative research. So it's, this area seems to be one where qualitative research and qualitative methodology um, would, would be key. Um, and just the, the, the final thing that you mentioned before we go mindfulness, Nora, was the applied work. So it, it's true, many individuals who speak um, convincingly about the importance of the spiritual side in their work as sports psychologists are people who've had a lot of practice. But, um, they also have a particular background and, and maybe they reflect and thought very carefully. But they're, they're used to actually you know, hearing terms that and describing, um, athletes describing um, experiences that um, do not fit neatly into some of the existing um, constructs that you'd find in sports psychology. And so I think what's going to be interesting is I hope future researchers will take some of those words, some of those ideas, um, concepts, uh, and drive them back into theory and consider what theory in psychology at the moment can accommodate those, can make more sense. So in other words, let the words from the ground change the theory. It shouldn't be science and theory that changes reality. It's the other way um, in certainly this particular example here. And then maybe the second part of that research would be, and what are the implications of this for, one, what we teach in sports psychology, what we expose our students to, how we train and educate them. And uh, obviously part of that is the implications for applied practice. What actually should we be doing and how should we be doing that? So I'll stop now, Nora, that's enough there, and I'm sure you want to come back to mindfulness eventually. Yeah, I mean, when we are talking about the trends and, and what is going on in sports psychology and, and spirituality, I think we should definitely touch upon mindfulness. The interesting thing is that we've done a little bit of reviewing that work with, with some colleagues, like after writing the book, and 
if you are looking for literature on spirituality, the mindfulness studies don't come up at all because they don't use the word spirituality at all in, in, in these studies. So what you see in sports psychology is that mindfulness is taken as a completely secular concept. So it's not discussed in relation to Buddhism at all. It's not discussed in relation to spirituality at all. But it seems to be a lot more about secular technique, which is focused on, on, on being present in the moment. And there's a very interesting paper by Mark Anderson in that was recently published in the Journal of Sports Psychology in Action. And he's he's looking at these Eastern and Western perspectives on identity and and the Buddhist idea of no self. And he's just taking it up that we have so many of these mindfulness studies now in sports psychology and they are very fashionable at the moment. But almost none of these studies are trying to link that to the original Buddhist goal of realizing the no-self as, as is part of that spiritual tradition. And outside of sports psychology, there are so many of these uh, critical commentaries and, and so many of these worries that are being voiced that kind of mindfulness easily becomes just a self-help technique that has like no connection to ethics and just these questions that if you just take a technique and you completely divorce it from the philosophical and spiritual tradition where it came from and these questions that is it ethical and is it actually going to help people if if it's done that way but i think in sports psychology we we are certainly not discussing this uh, enough. We are not discussing this almost almost at all. Well, this might be um, a little bit melodramatic to say this, but it could almost make you cry. This, in some ways, is wonderful to see um, because of uh, what Nora just said in terms of the, the grounding of um, this approach, certainly. Um, and I know the, uh, the Anderson um, writing that she's referring to, and he makes the, the you know, very um, correct point that uh, this is something that is associated with and derived from um, Buddhism, Zen Buddhism, and uh, and encouraging people and doing more than that to to go and have a look at uh, the grounding. And so that's all very wonderful and very exciting, but <laughs> but unfortunately, and I have to say this, I know it sounds rather negative, but unfortunately, whilst the culture of sports psychology typically and some of the reasons behind this maybe we should talk about to uh, to give a balanced view, but typically is still associated with quick fix and a quick fix mentality and that something has to be uh, effective and we need to be able to measure it and it needs to be an intervention. And it's all of that language, which is fundamentally language from the natural sciences, which is language from physics um, and, and has its place in psychology, as we've said, but it's... A small place. It shouldn't be the entirety of our discipline. It's such uh, an error, uh, phenomenologically speaking. It does not connect to the full reality of working, particularly when you're doing work with with real human beings in, in real situations. Um, so, in terms of um, mindfulness, what an opportunity to look at something from a countercultural perspective. When the Western culture for such a long time now 
has been about speed, ease, quickness. Whereas what we're talking about here, spirituality, and this is another one of the deeper reasons why currently in the West it is so unfashionable, is this will take time. It will never be complete. You, you can talk about it and try and assess where you are, and that's meaningful to one level. But this will never be something you can reduce to something that is neat, clear, and tidy. This is not about cause and effect. It's not even almost about correlation. This is something beyond that. And so to understand this, I think, you know, from an academic point of view, I would love our psychologists to spend much more time studying some philosophy, to understand the different philosophical perspectives that, un that underpin their psychological view. And then they decide. Then it's a free world. You decide where you are. But understand the limitations of what you've got. So mindfulness could have been, and I hope it might still be, but uh, any sign of it yet, something much more than a technique. Somebody said this, I wish it had been me, but somebody said, in the end, technique eventually undermines technique. And uh, there's lots in that statement. And, and one of the things in that statement is that technique is almost like in medicine using something to deal purely with symptoms. The underlying causes, the real, if you like, explanation of what's going on must be part of the cure, if we wanted to put those words, that's not the appropriate language for us. So it's really depressing to see mindfulness just being used as some kind of flashy quick fix technique. And what's worse is it, it again makes sports psychology in the eyes of some people, you can understand why, appear to be that it's just this collection of these quick techniques that are barely grounded in anything. And uh, what a missed opportunity that is. Um, and I think that maybe, again, the higher-level athletes, many higher-level athletes have already been through so many challenges and struggles and exciting moments and all of the other things that they face. But the level of commitment, the intensity that's demanded to be really good at whatever it is you're doing usually means that you're suspicious of something that is easy and quick. Sometimes it is the appropriate thing, but very often it's not, and you've learned that through your life. So what a chance with mindfulness to actually broaden it out, to show that it's actually part of, as you said, Nora, something that's much deeper, that, that actually could be described and is more properly described as something that is grounded in a, a spiritual view. And uh, so that's certainly where I am. I certainly think it's really, really valuable. I think it's, it's, it's excellent that it's there, but I really fear that it's having its moment and it's viewed as just another technique, almost like imagery or relaxation strategies. Yeah, I, I'm on the same page with that. And, and I mean, certainly not saying that this is all terrible and it, it should not happen. Like it's certainly that we are drawing on Eastern traditions and we are trying to understand some of that and how it can help us understand the way we are in sport is a very valuable striving. But I, and at the same time, I'm certainly not an expert in Zen Buddhism. Like I've done my own readings as much as I can, but I, uh, one of the problems I think also in this literature is that it's almost exclusively Western scholars' um, interpretation. So I think in this debate and this dialogue, we should have a lot more scholars who are also grown up in these traditions and, and to have their perspectives much more often in the literature as well. And, and that's hopefully something that is going to happen more often in the future.
But so maybe it's good time to move on. So I'll I'll hand it to Olli. We can be talking the whole day, <laughs> I guess. Yeah, thanks, Nora. Uh, I, I I think it was a really good critique about mindfulness and and it's really reductionistic and and if you try to reduce sin to something you are you are probably going the the wrong way but like said if we if we move on so in your books you have covered a diverse array of things including health motivation injury aging and applied sports psychology among other things so Please choose your favorite topic or theme and share some thoughts on on that. Mark, would you like to go first on this one? Well, I suppose the one that I have um, had most interest in, and, and the reason why I've experienced is, is the applied um, aspect. I know we've we've discussed that um, in most of these uh, bits of the dialogue um, between us so far, um, but that's that is probably where I'm. Um, still most interested and there's a few reasons for that and and one of them is um, (laughs) to put it in um, more sort of traditional language uh, I have seen this in action and I've seen its importance or if you want to be even more uh, narrow I've seen it work and that doesn't sound at all inconsistent with what we've just been saying about spirituality and that this is not uh, something that um, is to be approached to get instantaneous results um, and it's not about cause and effect. But but as I say, um, that's been an impetus to me is actually to um, being able to sit down with, with athletes from different sports over all these years in the last um, 33, 34 years um, and from a range of different sports, and as I often say, absolutely not everybody, for a whole host of different reasons. Um, and this includes athletes of different ages and, and sex and uh, performance um, success and a whole host of different factors you could drop in there in culture. Um, and uh, and yet hear them talking about um, uh, words using words and um, describing themselves in terms that cannot be fully accounted for by the more reductionist theoretical perspectives in psychology. And by that, I mean behaviorism um, and cognitive psychology in particular. Um, and it's not that those areas do not have some value. They most certainly do. But I'm talking about um, having encounters with athletes and in uh, hearing what we've just been talking about now. And uh, let me be very explicit. Here's one in the last um, few years, and I won't narrow it down more than that because I would hate anybody to put two and two together. They'll probably get the wrong person. Um, But this person described how it was a long journey for them through a number of crises moments. This is a very, very, very high-level performer. Um, And that they eventually learned that uh, the techniques that they were using to attempt to, as it were, um, remove themselves from the picture so they could be um, the full person out there and get into the zone more often, and when they weren't in the zone, um, remain performing at good level, that it took crisis moments. It took various moments both within sport and also outside of sport, illness in the family, 
um, all sorts of difficulties and challenges, for them to reassess and then reevaluate and reassess again and come to the um, situation that Nora so um, eloquently described where they understood that to focus on results and to use techniques to stop themselves focusing on results would um, bring uh, performances that were not as good and not sustained or certainly over the longer term and actually um, undermine their joy and happiness and 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 sense of uh, purpose in what they were doing and th this is we're talking professional high level professional sport here um, and that it took a long time for them to get to this place and they described this place as somewhere where they viewed whatever the result was was a gift all the work that they had to do and they knew they had to do um, could not guarantee anything in other words they had managed to get to a very, very high level of disassociating themselves with the outcome, with the result. And I've explained this to a few people over the years, and they've said, I mean, I can't believe this. It's incredulous. How could somebody not care about the result if they're a top, top-level performer? It's like, no, 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 listen carefully. They deeply care about the result before they do something. They deeply care about it afterwards. But they prepared themselves so that when they're actually doing it, they're not considering the result at all and they're not expecting that to happen their focus interestingly is what a lot of sports psychologists would say and a lot of sports psychology literature has said over the years their focus was on purely controlling their own performances their own processes and expecting nothing in return well that took according to this person that took them between five and six years to get reasonably close to that place so for me, I think in terms of applied implications, the applied implications of this would be I'm really, really disappointed that our sports psychology profession, to a large extent, not in all cases, still is not as countercultural as it should be. It should be the discipline that's countercultural in the sense of asking, helping, supporting people to take time, to take as much time as they possibly can even if they're in a very fast-moving, highly demanding place where it appears you need to perform brilliantly every time and certainly the next time. And so to actually do what we um, often pronounce as psychologists, which is to take the time to understand something fully. In ordinary English, we would say, you know, maybe in today's world, certainly in sport language, we'd say to own something fully yourself. And that that usually takes time and struggle. And, and that that's not a weakness of the sports psychologist and it's certainly not a weakness of the athlete. And uh, so I think that this topic um, has the potential, this area has the potential to be countercultural um, and to help both with performance and well-being. Um, and will suggest that actually um, we move far, far too quickly on far too many things. And, uh, and that this is one of the ways to achieve, and one of the best ways to achieve, um, sustained high-level performance, which will bring some, some moments of deep joy. So that's where I am. It's, it's the applied world, really, for me, Ollie, it always really was, and it's kind of gone full circle. Um, 
and and I'd love other people to come in and much better researchers than me who have got much more interest than that in that topic. And maybe that's where I should hand over to Nora because I know she's a, a very very um, highly skilled researcher. Yeah, I I think a good thing for me here is to broaden our discussion. So you are certainly an expert in in terms of your applied practice in the elite and professional sport context. I think the part that I was bringing into our book was more about um, the role of sport, for example, in later life. So, and I have been a bit more of um, recreational sport or non-elite sport researcher and, and, and certainly participant as well. And so for me, one of the topics maybe to take from the book that I'd like to discuss for a couple of minutes is, is the topic of aging. And I think from spiritual perspective, that's highly interesting because spirituality is one of the very few dimensions of human life that we actually often think about as something that is increasing or growing when you are getting older. So, for example, if we think about your athletic abilities or your physical performance, that's something that declines when you get older and and I mean, there are, we can talk about cognitive decline and we can talk about all sorts of decline when you get older. But spirituality is something that we often uh, talk about spiritual growth when we get older. And, and I think that's really uh, fascinating to look into older athletes and the meaning they find in sport and, and how meaning in sport shifts when athletes get older. And as part of my PhD research, we did this study with, with Mark and, and Tatiana Riba, where we looked at stories of, of runners who'd been in, in high level, they'd been competing in national and international level. And when they were getting older, they encountered this existential dilemma, like, is it worth continuing to run if I'm not getting any faster anymore? That... I'm a little bit slower than the year before and next year I'm probably going to be slower than this year. Is is there a point to run anymore? And and then some of these athletes were runners were then talking about this reflections, maybe this growing spiritual dimension of of running that they were experiencing and and this is something that comes up in some of my later work as well. So aging is something that forces us to think about the meaning of sport in our life when it's not uh, maybe possible to always be climbing up the ladder of achievement anymore. So is it still worth for us to keep doing that when when we are getting older. It was a nice nice way. There was a little uh, popular story in the Runner's World magazine about that study we did with Mark and Tatiana. And, and the title was something like uh, why reading Sartre might help you more than constantly chasing new personal records. And, and that was about when you are getting older, you need to be thinking about meaning of sport and and whether it's it's worthwhile for you to continue your involvement. So, yeah, those are some of the things that I've continued working on. I'm I'm fascinated with these things. I'm 35 now, so as an athlete, as a sport participant, it's 
funny to think that I'm actually getting a little bit old. <laughs> and so it's also a personal reflection. I can now compete in the Masters Athletics if I want to. I'll, I'll see whether I go for that. But yeah, that's a fascinating topic for me. Yeah, thanks. Do you want to add something, Mark? Yes, I, I think it's, even though Nora uh, led on that topic in, in the book and did a fantastic job, and I think um, she's not going to say this, so I will, that she's opened up so many um, really interesting areas for uh, researchers as well as um, uh, theorists and, and applied practitioners to pursue. But but since we were talking about research, um, lots of uh, of, of potential avenues to to go down and uh, I think it's you know one one of the chapters in the book that can do that and I think it's um, a great um, point to make that you know this topic is not just about and most certainly not um, uh, just about elite level athletes this is about everyone and uh, and and certainly about um, you know later stages of uh, life and later stages of um, sporting lives and just a couple of things on that um, I've mentioned Jung three times that's probably more than I thought I was going to but but why not because at least Jung unlike Freud had a a, a very um, uh, interesting perspective on spirituality and had much to say about spirituality and religion and is one of the great psychologists after all and uh, and he said that uh, that mid-age, he, he said that was 40 in his days. I, I hope it's much older than that, given how old I am. Um, but that at mid middle age is the absolute key moment in the development of uh, an individual's personality. That's how he expressed it. In that you either become uh, a more spiritual person, and then he elaborates what that actually means, or you regress. In other words, you don't stay still. You regress. And you regress to something else. So that that's quite stark. That's quite a warning. Uh, it's, it's interesting. It's worthy of thought. And I think that has real relevance for sport. In that as your physical prowess and maybe even to some degree your psychological um, capacities begin to decline. Why why do I at 60, uh, 61 I am now, why do I still play quite poor tennis? Why do I still try and play five-a-side football with people 35 years younger than me? Why, why do I do as I've just done, go out for a, a long cycle ride? Um, what, why am I doing all these things? To what end? Because I'm certainly not getting any quicker or faster or better in narrow performance terms. Um, and the, I think there's lots of ways of describing that. And, and one of the ways, which is what you know we were trying to do in the book, is to say that this um, links into meaning. And to make that more explicit, in my terms and, and some of the literature we've drawn on, that means identity. And, and it's a, 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 an account of how I see myself. And it's most certainly not, it never was, but it most certainly not narrowly defined in terms of some external view of performance. Um, a way to describe it would be it's me against me, which, of course, there are spiritual traditions, religious and non-religious, in the East and the West, who would say, but that's exactly a spiritual view. It's you against you. You trying to be a little bit better. Me at 61 trying to be a little bit better at the level of tennis that I play. Why? Because there's great enjoyment and there's a great opportunity to commit to something, to do something that um, brings the whole mind and body together in one unified whole and everything disappears, at least for some seconds and sometimes for even longer. 
um, and uh, and that you bring um, the the joy and satisfaction back into your life from something that when you reflect on it, uh, nothing has been produced. You haven't, in, at my level, I certainly haven't made any money and won any awards. Nothing has been produced. Um, and so in that sense, this is an encounter with art. The, the, to, in my view of what I experience, I, I am involved um, in art. Uh, this is a holistic experience. Um, it doesn't mean, by the way, as I'm sure artists like sculptors would certainly tell you, that art does not involve strain, sweating, and hard work in narrow sense. Of course it does. Um, but that's not its prime motive. Those are things that have to be done. So I think Nora's chapter on, on ageing and, uh, and understanding sport in a different way um, and hearing those stories, because there are people who actually participate and we haven't listened to them, uh, and, and not prejudging why they do something. And not coming up with superficial, simplistic accounts that it's purely to do with physical fitness. It may be that, but it very often is much, much more than that. And and that, to me, is um, so important in so many different ways. And, and I'd hope there's lots of you know research. Young, if we're going to do any research that's fresh and new and tells us something different, what an avenue to follow. And I guess just to... Very briefly follow up to that is that one of these things that we are addressing in the book is that yes, sport is something that can bring you achievement. Sport is something that can bring you better health as well. Like these are the common justifications of sport and exercise, but we are hoping to bring more awareness and, and hopefully more research in this area of how can sport be a meaningful part of people's lives how can it bring more meaning to people and this spiritual dimension and how sport can be in some ways also a spiritual practice for people uh, just just to join in um nora with that last comment i think you're absolutely right and and i think there's much that could be said there and and i think that in some cases and i'm sure we will hear this and and to hear the accounts would be really interesting how some people actually find that their um, spiritual encounters and, and almost awakening in their sport connects into their broader life, that they actually maybe develop a greater understanding of uh, the spiritual and spirituality in life outside of sport, as it were. Um, and, and so that, you know, in this way, sport can be much more than just something that is about, as you quite rightly said, exercise and the physical and, and even the psychological in narrowly conceived that actually it can touch other parts of your life and uh, and and broaden um, your understanding of what it is to be a human being and if that sounds very grand and that sounds uh, you know uh, overblown and exaggerated um then um, i think that uh, that's not the case and i'm looking forward to the research and the studies that will um give us uh, you know accounts of uh, and, and, and their own personal accounts of just what I've just described. And I'm quite sure that's there. Yeah, so this has been really fascinating discussions and a lot to think about for everyone within within sports. But I think we need to start start wrapping up. So the name of the book is Meaning and Spirituality in Sport and Exercise Psychological Perspectives. So if you're interested 
to learn more about this, check out the book. And thanks, thanks a lot, Nora and Mark, for taking the time for this podcast episode. Thanks so much, Olli, for being the host today, and and thanks, Mark. I I really enjoyed our our discussion, and even if we work together, I feel that. Uh, there were, again, new perspectives and, and more things to think about. So, yeah, thank you. Same, Nora and, uh, and Ollie, thanks for, for hosting that. It's, uh, it's not your uh, your discipline. I think you did a, a really good job and, and you, probably, you showed it can be done, um, even if you do not have the disciplinary background, again, in, in conventional terms. And so thank you very much for that. And I agree, Nora, I think... Uh, there's lots and lots of fresh ideas that um, you, I'm sure, will take on and that other people will. Um, and, uh, yeah, I, I, I look forward to seeing something uh, something emerge in the journals, particularly in the journals, um, in the, uh, the next few years. Yeah, thanks. This was fully my pleasure. Thanks for joining us this week on Physical Activity Researcher Podcast. If you like the show, make sure you never miss an episode by subscribing or following the show on Twitter. This podcast is made possible by listeners like you. Thank you for your support. If you found value in the show, we would really appreciate a rating on Apple Podcasts or whichever app you're using. Or if you would, in a real old school way, simply tell a friend about the show, it would be great help for us we have a fantastic lineup of guests for forthcoming episodes so be sure to tune in thank you all for your support and have a great day